0: If you'd open your Bibles to Galatians, chapter four, we're going to continue our study uh, through this uh, hard-hitting epistle. I mean, it's certainly been one that's continually hammered us home with uh, this idea of what it means to walk in grace. And uh, as you turn there, um, I, I certainly want to thank, and on behalf of Cindy and I, everyone uh, who helped us move yesterday. Um, I'm pretty sure Guinness Book of World Record um, in moving everything from two different spots into one. That was remarkable. And uh, for a while, there was mass confusion. um, But by the end of the day, there was a sense of order and clarity. And as I thought about this text, I thought as we read it, there's going to be a sense of mass confusion. Hopefully, by the end, there will be some clarity. Um, This is considered by some one of the most difficult passages in the uh, New Testament, in one of Paul's writings, anyways. And so um, hopefully there will be a little clarity. Uh, I'm going to be reading a kind of a chunk here. And so I need you to follow through. And again, uh, some of it will be what's all this about. Uh, stick with it. And I'll uh, we'll read chapter 4, verse 8 through the end of the chapter. And once again, notice this theme of grace and what great lengths Paul's going to. To help his hearers and help us understand what that walk is and what it isn't. Verse 8 of chapter 4. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, I have also become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out in order that you may seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present, but not only when I am present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor, until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. One by the bondwoman, one by the free woman. But the son of by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children, who are to be slaves, she is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But to Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For, for more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of that bondwoman shall not be, in, shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. We know it's true. We also know there's any, nothing we could understand of it aside from your Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you, please speak to us. Help us understand. And help us to receive what your Spirit has for us individually this morning. In Christ's name, Amen. In this text, we get a glimpse of the heart of Paul. We see his affection for the church, and which is interesting because Paul's really laid into these people first couple chapters. I mean, he's been hammering them pretty good. And uh, and Luther writes about him. This text just breathes Paul's tears. I think he's hit it on the head. He's emphasizing the same truths, but it's almost like Paul stepped back and become a little more personal and trying to help his hearers understand a bigger picture. And Paul extends an invitation to these believers by way of three tender appeals, and this is kind of what jumped out. Look at verse 12. He says, I beg of you, brethren. If you go to verse 28, and you, brethren, down to verse 31, so then, brethren, actually, you go back to verse 19, my children, Paul, these are tender phrases. Paul's making an appeal and even inviting them towards a different way of life. And I noticed some things here. First of all, not surprisingly, because it seems to be the theme throughout the book, is he invites them to walk in freedom. Verse 8 says, you were slaves. Verse 9 says, how can you turn back? And verse 10 says, you observe these days. And Paul says, I want to invite you to a different walk. I wanna invite you to walk in freedom, brethren. I want you to walk in freedom like I am. It's an invitation to move out of slavery to the law, a legalism to walk in grace from slaves to sonship. In more of a humorous way this morning, I couldn't find my ties. I don't know where they're at. They're in some box somewhere, and, and whenever I face wardrobe, questions, I think, what would Tom Ganser wear? And so that's what I went with. Okay? It's a good rule of thumb. It's got me this far. And, uh, but, but what if, what if I legalistically thought, I've got to wear a tie or I won't be welcome? You would think, that's ridiculous, Matt. I mean, you look alright, well, as good as you can. And uh, you don't need a tie to look appropriate or fitting. But you would think that would be weird if I said, i got to have a tie or else you shouldn't even listen to me because I'm not dressed right. And it's kind of almost where Paul's going on this thing. He's saying, you kind of had this way where you had to dress a certain way, you had to do a certain thing. I'm telling you there's another way. You can take the tie off. (laughs) It's okay. And it's almost like they needed permission. And so he extends this invitation to them. And he illustrates by analogy of slavery and freedom and sonship. As so We talked last week about adoption and what a beautiful doctrine that is. Now remember the Judaizers, these false teachers at this time, if you haven't been with us for a couple of weeks, they have taught that if you want to be right with God, if you want to be saved, you need to do certain things. So they're adding to this gospel. And indeed, Paul says even perverting it. But let's bring this into contemporary language. It would be like Paul saying to us this morning, you go to church, you sing songs, you pray your prayers, and you study your book, you go through all these motions thinking that by doing these things, you have now found favor with God. And that by doing these things, you're making yourselves right before God. I think Paul would say to us, you're no different than the Muslims around the world who are worshiping in mosques this week. No difference They're checking off their boxes to try to make themselves right before God. You're checking off your boxes trying to make yourself right before God. Is there really a difference? You could say, well, I pray. Big deal. So do Muslims. Probably pray more than you, more than I. Hindus worship. We can't even throw that one out. We worship. So do Hindus. They worship all day long. You could say, well, I read, nice study. I'm, that means I'm right with God. Well, so do Jehovah's Witnesses. They know it better than most of us. You could say, I go on missions trips, so do Mormons. And the whole point is, it's not about us earning and doing right things to be in favor with God. The difference between Christianity and all these other religions I just mentioned is one thing. God came down out of grace and saved us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the truth. That's salvation, that God demonstrated his great love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel, and it's a beautiful truth. The reality is as long as we're following rules that we've set up and prescribed in Christianity, as long as we think that by doing these things we're making ourselves right before God, saving our skin for eternity, then we're condemned just like any other religion in the world. But Paul's saying, no, listen, we're sons of In a relationship with a living God through the person of Jesus Christ, we're not slaves to religion who are doing things in order to make ourselves right with God. We are sons who've been made right with God, who now walk in a relationship with Him. You and I have been invited to walk in freedom, to enjoy Jesus. It's to be our daily experience. Sometimes I'll sign a letter, or if I type a a message to someone else, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I put a footnote. Hey, enjoy Jesus today. And I've had several go back because I've never had anyone say that to me. And I said, I, it, it's a shame. <laughs> but enjoy him because we're meant to enjoy our relationship with Jesus each day. This is Christianity. And don't go back, Paul's saying. We're also invited to stand on truth. If you look at verse 15 through 20, Paul makes an interesting question. He says, We've had this history. I came to you, I had an illness, some many believe he was having trouble with his sight but neither here nor there. But they received him and he says, "Wow, I mean you you blessed me. You received me." In in light of that past, am I now an enemy because I'm telling you the truth? It's a good question. It forced them to step back and say, "Well, wait a minute. Maybe we should listen. This this guy has some credibility with us. We we know he cares. He came and preached the gospel to us." What's, Paul, what's happened here? Paul's saying we were together. Now you're looking at me like I'm some kind of enemy. And you're turning. I told you the truth of God. And Paul, in essence, invites them to now stand upon truth, not upon these false teachers. And we, too, are invited towards that. In fact, to teach the truth is to risk alienation, isn't it? Because God's truth cuts like a knife. And Paul invites them to stand on truth, However, the Judaizers weren't inviting them to stand on truth. They are inviting them to stand on the law and their interpretation of it. The Judaizers had an agenda, verse 17 through 18, tell us, they eagerly seek you. They're going after them. They're trying to convert them to this perverted gospel. I like the way John Stott puts it. In order to win the Galatians to their perverted gospel, the false teachers fawned on them and fussed over them. Pretty good interpretation of that verse. You know, pursuing others isn't bad, but let's pursue them to stand on truth. Let's pursue them towards the gospel. And I think this invitation to stand on truth, really relevantly wise, has two kind of components to it. It's really a twofold invitation. One, it's to stand even when it's not easy. What Paul's asking the Galatians to do is not an easy thing. It's to leave behind old ways, possibly lose friends ostracized by legalists, as some of them owned a business that potentially could hinder their profit. What he's asking them is not easy. And to further st- step out, in order to make the gospel known, he knew that not only would he face persecution, but so would these, his brethren here in Galatia. In fact, that's really what he's talking about. Look, If you look at verse 29, it's interesting, is he takes Ishmael and Isaac's situation, and at the end of the verse, he says, so it is now also in other words there are those who are going to try to earn favor with god by the law and, and pressure you to follow law and then there's going to be sons of promise saved by grace and they'll always persecute you just like ishmael did with isaac and so now it will also happen and so you and i need to stand up even when it's not easy what is interesting is who's doing the persecuting. If you look at the history of God's people, even in the Old Testament, the prophets, they were persecuted, yep. Who persecuted them mostly? Was it the pagan Gentile nations? No, it was the religious folk. That seems to be who persecuted them the most. And we, you and I, need to stand up for truth even when it's not easy. You and I also need to stand up for truth even when it's not popular. Today, especially, it's not popular to follow Jesus, whether the halls at school or the lunchroom at work. As a pastor, I come face to face with a question awful uh, often when I hit certain texts, and that is do I want to be popular or do I want to be faithful? I want you to know I'm committed to being faithful, expositor of the text as best as I can. If you ever notice me veering off, please stop me. I want to be faithful more than I want to be popular. And I want all of us to pray, God, help us to stand even when it's not popular, even when it may cost me others having an unfavorable opinion. Help us also to receive your word with humility. Whether you're a teenager today or you're in a a different season of your life, a little older season, you need to stand on God's truth even when it's not popular. Because the more you stand, you're going to find you won't be Just the news this week, Ben Carson was interviewed and his views on homosexuality. He told his convictions, and CNN especially, had a field day. Why? It's not popular. Standing upon biblical truth. It's not now. It wasn't Paul's day, and it won't be in the future. But Paul warned us in another letter. He says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul invites you and I to stand on truth. We're also invited, verse 21 through 31, to a greater zeal. Now I want you to notice this whole letter has really been written with great passion. And like a skilled lawyer, Paul's defending the truth. And he's already talked about Abraham's covenant. He's already talked about the Mosaic covenant to show the superiority of grace over the law. Now he gets into a little bit more. He directs his readers once again to the book of Genesis and the life of Abraham. And as noted earlier, nothing made the Jews feel more proud than their descendancy from Abraham. And since they were physically related to the man with whom God had made his covenant promises, they assumed they were in God. And before Paul, Jews were shown they were wrong in this point. Already John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 9 had done it. Jesus in John 8, 31 through 47 had addressed it, that they were wrong. (laughs) It wasn't just about being a physical descendant. A physical connection to Abraham provided no privileged spiritual status before God. Now, if you look at verse 22 and 23, Paul doesn't name the two persons, but it's obviously he's talking about Ishmael and Isaac because he brings into it Hagar and Sarah. Now, Ishmael was born by Hagar. Hagar was a servant of Abraham's wife. And Ishmael was born to Hagar according to the flesh, in other words, by natural means. Basically, you can look at Hagar and say that was man's attempt to somehow bring about a God-ordained plan. Abraham and Sarah, they couldn't wait. They thought it was over as far as them having children, so they devised a plan. And uh, as we often devise plans, this one wasn't God's plan. And from Hagar came Ishmael. Isaac on the other hand was a child of promise while Ishmael was born the course of nature requiring no miracle requiring no promise not so with Isaac Isaac was a miracle child born to Abraham and Sarah as God opened Sarah's womb when she was 90 years old and brought Isaac into the world just as God had promised and so if you tie this together in this brief look at history Paul sets a slave born by natural birth, natural means Ishmael, against a free child born by supernatural means, Isaac. In doing this, he illustrates the incompatibility of salvation by natural means of keeping the law and salvation by supernatural means of God coming down in Christ Jesus to save us through grace. He sets them against is incompatible. And in Ishmael and Isaac, we see a picture of what's seen throughout this letter, that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone, not by human effort. You can see Paul, with great zealousness and passion, is going to great lengths to hammer this point home. Now, verse 24 and 25, as I read this, I thought, you know, there could have been some Jews there who claimed special status as as being a physical descendant from Isaac. As Paul gives us two sons account of support for his position, they could have used it as support for their position by saying, okay, Paul, since Isaac was a son of promise, wouldn't physical descendants of Isaac be sons of promise? It might have been how they rationalized it. Well, Paul's probably thinking that. To make a distinction between law and grace even clearer, Paul shifts his allegiance to a symbolic discussion of a historical fact, historical events that he just described. And this is important, what he's talking about. He says the literal meaning of the story of Abraham that I just declared relates to the conception of two sons. It also has additional meaning, is what Paul's saying. And so he he talks about this conflict between Judaism and Christianity in more of an allegorical um, focus. He says Hagar... Well, she represents an old covenant, the old covenant Mosaic law. And just as Hagar's son Ishmael was a slave, so those who live under the law are slaves. Why? Because the law required perfect obedience. We could never do that. Nobody could ever live perfect obedience to the law. No one could do it. Nobody could attain it. Therefore, the law continually condemned us and others exposing our sin, and it keeps us in its oppressive grip. And by the way, Hagar was never intended to be Abraham's wife, or Ishmael was never promised to be the seed of grace. That was man's attempts. That was man's efforts. Hagar also, in verse 25, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. You're like, what on earth is all that talking about? How could Hagar represent the present Jerusalem? Now, it helped to understand Jerusalem in Paul's day had a double thing going against it. They were in slavery to Rome, but also Jerusalem was considered the city of law. Not only were they enslaved to Rome, they were enslaved to the law. And so this present-day Jerusalem, we're told in verse 25... Hagar corresponds to the present-day Jerusalem, the city of law, in slavery to law, for she's enslaved at the end of verse 25, says she's in slavery with her children. So Hagar represents slavery to the law. Sarah, as we would expect, represents freedom in Christ. We're told in verse 26 about a, a Jerusalem above. This is a unique phrase. What is this Jerusalem above? Remember, Paul's building a contrast here. And Hagar corresponds to a literal earthly Jerusalem inhabited primarily by Jewish people enslaved in the law, but this is a different one. This Jerusalem above represents Sarah, our mother. And it must, uh, must really illustrate something different. We need to apply it to a non-earthly Jerusalem or those who are all saved by grace populate this heavenly Jerusalem. Some scholars see this Jerusalem as a church universal, or all those who are redeemed in Christ. Others see it as heaven, God's dwelling place, which is inhabited by the souls of the redeemed. But whatever Paul's exact meaning is here, it's obvious that this Jerusalem represents those who are saved through faith in Christ. That's the important point here. It's a place, it's a people characterized by freedom, not by enslavement to the law that's his whole point. And then he shores up his argument for superiority of freeing faith over enslaving law by quoting Isaiah 54.1, where it says, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. In other words, Isaiah directed his words to the Jewish exiles living in Babylon at that time. And he was assuring them that their bondage would not last. It would not last forever. But that they would return to their homeland and become more numerous than ever. Well, how does Paul quote Isaiah, and how does that relate to the church in Galatia? Well, some scholars vary here. Some believe that Paul's saying that God's promise to bless the Jewish exiles and to make them fruitful would be fulfilled ultimately in the church since those of Christ are seed of Abraham. Others say God's, say Isaiah's promise will not be fulfilled until the millennium. And during this time, they say Israel will again be a great nation, and her Messiah, Jesus, will reign from the earthly Jerusalem. Point is, there's a lot going on in this text, isn't there? And so I put a little chart there. I think if you could fill in the chart, you'd get a nice... Clearer distinction. Hagar the bondwoman, in contrast, Sarah the free woman. Ishmael a natural birth, and in contrast to Ishmael is Isaac, a supernatural birth. There's the old covenant of law, and in contrast to the new covenant of grace. There's the earthly Jerusalem, those who live enslaved to the law, then there's the heavenly Jerusalem, those who are free in Christ. There's Judaism. Based on the law, there's Christianity based on Jesus Christ and what he did for us. There's slavery to the law, and there's freedom in Christ. And if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are, like the Galatian Christians, children of the free woman, Sarah, children of promise. And just as Isaac, born as a result of God's promise, so all Christians are born again as a result of God's promise to Abraham to bring spiritual descendants I'm amazed at Paul's teaching here. And I was reminded as I read over and over that this gospel, this great news of God's grace, it's not only for the fertile Hagars, but for the barren Sarahs. Now, Sarah can have a future, so can you and I. And God gives grace to the barren, to those who come offering nothing, but receive this promise of grace. Now, verse 29 through 30, if we were to go back to Genesis and read the story, Abraham banished Hagar and Ishmael because of Ishmael's persecution of Isaac. And similarly, Christians today are to reject legalism and refute those who teach it. And the Jews, interestingly, interpret this passage as God's rejection of the Gentiles, but Paul turns the tables completely on them, connecting the Jews with the slave woman and all Christ- Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, with the free woman. Paul sums up his whole teaching in verse 31. So then, brethren, so then are kind of those words of here's why I'm wrapping up everything I just said here. So then, we're not children of the bondwoman enslaved to the law, but of the free woman. That's who we are. All those who've trusted in Jesus Christ are free. What a great. And those who are free are free indeed. There's two. Thoughts I'd like to leave with. I believe Paul would want us, I believe God, more importantly, God would want us to leave here with, and one is a zealousness to walk in freedom, to walk in grace. And it struck me when I read verse 19, when Paul says, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, it strikes me as I read that verse, that as Christ is is being formed in us, what does it look like? we're walking in freedom. That's part of becoming more like Christ, is walking in the freedom of his grace. Refusing to be enslaved again, to enjoy Jesus, to enjoy our relationship with him. Don't allow to drift back to a mechanical Christianity, to being enslaved to works-driven spirituality. Spend time relationally with God and enjoy your relationship with a God who loves you unconditionally. But it's not just a zealousness to walk in freedom. It's a zealousness to see others walk in freedom. It's to invest in them that they can walk in freedom. And I thought, what would happen if every church leader, every Sunday school teacher, every community group leader, every youth group leader looked at those that they were ministering to and said, I want a model for you what it looks like to walk in freedom because I want so much for you to walk in freedom. What if we all did that? Wouldn't that be great? Yet that's what God calls us to. The gospel seems more threatening to religious people than non-religious people, but how great will it be if we stand on the truth of walking in freedom in Christ, lovingly pointing others towards a life of grace and freedom, a place where there's freedom from burdens, from enslaving law. There's grace for those whose lives are barren of peace, whose life desperately needs freedom in Christ. I remember years ago, in closing here, if those who came at 10, you came just in time. How about that, okay? I was, as a youth pastor... um, a couple of times over the years we did what was called a prom alternative when the public school did their big prom dance and everything. There were some who said, you know what, we'd rather not go in that environment. We'd rather something different. And so we had a group of about 30 kids who did a prom alternative. And, and some, some of them would invite someone and kind of come with a date. And, uh, but as a youth pastor, you usually do things different. And so we kind of had the group together. What do you all want to do together? And they're like, well, let's go out and eat. Let's go bowling. Now they're going to dress up, dresses. Nice clothes, bowling. Okay, this could be interesting. But that wasn't all. They all wanted to take our bus. We had an old school bus painted blue, old blue. And it was everything it sounds like, old blue. And so we got kids all dressed up, piling into this old blue bus. We're going to drive down to Eau Claire to a nice place to eat and go bowling. Because that's what the kids want to do. So here we're chugging along, and somewhere in the back, somebody concocted a great idea. It wasn't great for me at the time, but it was great for them, and that is when we get to the stoplight, let's do a Chinese fire drill <laughs> out of a bus, 30 kids. And so we stop. They didn't ask permission. They just started going. Well, doors open, and there they go, nice dresses, nice clothes going all the way around this bus. And I'm thinking, well, worst youth pastor in the world right now. Uh, I could take off. That could be kind of fun. But I thought, no, I got to get these kids home. And so I'm like, oh, man, you know, I kind of get worried and stuff like that. And, you know, they should stay on a bus. That's what good kids do. And, you know, and uh, I'm a bad guy. And I'm letting them off the bus. And they're all dressed up. What if they trip and get me? You know, all them things go through your mind as you try to be a responsible person. And, uh, and they, but they all get back on the bus, having the time of their life. And I love teenagers for that reason. Uh, spontaneity. And I thought, though, you know, there's going to be those throughout your life and mine who are going to want and tell you to stay on the bus. They're going to confine you to their rules. They're going to tell you this is what a good person is. This is how you earn your favor to God. But I believe as I read Galatians, God's opening the bus and says, you know what, get out. I want you to walk in freedom. Your life should be marked by joy, not the confines of sitting in nice little rows. That's what God's allowing us to do, opening the bus. And so will you walk in freedom? I pray that God would help you and I to walk in freedom, to stand upon his truth, and to gain a greater zeal, to walk in that freedom and help others walk in that freedom. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, I want to run in your ways. I want to continue to enjoy you. And I believe my brothers and sisters share that. God, I pray that you'd give us a greater zeal to walk with you, to walk a life, Lord, of great freedom because we've embraced your grace. We recognize that we bring nothing to the table. That the only way we can boldly approach your throne is because of your grace, as we've sung. That we lay everything down because of what you've done for us, not because of what we can do. We want to live like that, God. And we thank you there is such freedom in that. So Lord, might it be a message we live and might it be a message we proclaim. And Lord, for those in this room who may have raised thinking that if they follow the right rules or go to the right church, that would be enough. I pray, God, their eyes this morning would be open. They could see it's not about what they did. It's about what you have done. And as we've sung, I need you, might we really deep from our spirit believe that. That you are all we could ever need or ever want. Forgive us for trying to add things to it. Forgive us for trying to live a mechanical life when you open the door and allow us to run. Might we do that this week for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.